Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, I would like to start off today's episode by proclaiming my love. Um, It's a rather deep abiding love that has spanned for more than half of my life at this point. Maybe a borderline obsession that rivals my love of Scaparelli, who, as we know by now, if I had to pick just one favorite fashion designer, it would definitely be her. And when the same question is applied to artists, the subject of today's podcast is definitely in my top three favorite artists of all time. And we are, of course, speaking about the incomparable Marcel Duchamp. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it is in no way a stretch to say that Duchamp is one of the most important and influential of the early 20th century modern artists. I mean, his questioning of what is and is not art shook the very foundations of the art historical canon when he started producing installation works now over a century ago. It's a discourse, as we know, April, that is very relevant today. I mean, about six months ago, you actually brought up his work in the context of a conversation we were having about the current state of affairs of Balenciaga and questioning if this house had, you know, lost its way a bit in its pursuit of publicity over creativity. That point now seems to be illustrated all that much clearer given recent events of the last few weeks at Balenciaga. And as we noted, then the question of what is and is not art is only a short sidestep from the question, what is and is not fashion? And throw in there the additional query of can fashion be art and can art be fashion? Well, these are themes that we get the pleasure of playing with today with our guest, Dr. Ingrid Maida. Dr. Maida is a art and dress historian, artist, and curator with a PhD in art history and visual culture. She is the author of three books, The Dress Detective from 2015, 2020's Reading Fashion and Art, and most recently, the reason we're here today, Dressing and Undressing Duchamp. Dr. Maida has acted as a consultant to museums and private collectors in helping date and interpret photographs, artwork, and dress artifacts, and she has lectured in universities and museums in North America, Europe, and the UK. And she was just recently appointed the editor-in-chief of Dress, the Journal of the Costume Society of America. So Dr. Maida, a warm welcome to Dressed. Ingrid, a very overdue welcome to Dressed. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've been a fan of your show right from the beginning. It's a real honor. I'm so excited to talk to you about fashion and art, something we both share passion for. For sure. So our topic today and your work specifically, as you just mentioned, spans these realms and the intersections of both art history and also fashion history. So Could you tell us a little bit about how you first came to study dress and fashion? Because I suspect that your entry point might be the same as mine, and that was by way of studying art history first. Right. But for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by how people 
make almost instantaneous judgments about us based on the clothing we wear. Mm -hmm. I have a very vivid recollection of a quite a painful moment that happened when I was about five years old. I was at a playground and an older girl asked me if I was a boy. Uh, I don't know, maybe because on that particular day I was wearing my brother's hand-me-downs. And I don't think I was aware of what I put on before that day, but that experience stayed with me and made me really hyper aware of how clothes are the first thing that people use to make judgments about who we are. Mm -hmm. I learned to sew when I was about seven or eight, making clothes for my Barbie. And a couple of years later after that, I started making all my own clothes and I spent hours in my room sewing and studying the beautiful images in Vogue. But when I went to university in the 1980s, a career as a dress historian or fashion studies scholar wasn't really an option. And I actually began my study in architecture, thinking that it suited my skills in art and math. But as sometimes happens, um, life intervened, and especially during a recession, I had to make a detour into a more financially stable path. And after several <laughs> degrees and designations, I ended up in consulting. And it was in dressing for success that I was able to wear the types of clothes I'd seen in Vogue, like suits by Calvin Klein and Jenny and Thierry Mugler. And I think I actually like dressing for my job more than I like my job. <laughs> So after my boys were born, I decided not to continue on that treadmill and I returned to art school actually to become an artist. But it was in my art history classes that I started to really pay attention to the clothing that I saw in paintings, especially those by the Impressionists. And that led me to pick up Anne Hollander's book, Seeing Through Clothes. I have to say that that book literally changed my life. I think it's changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah, she was so influential. And after that, I started reading every dress history book I could find. And I also went to every fashion exhibition I could attend. And ultimately, sort of to validate that lived knowledge and experience, I earned a second master's degree and then a PhD in art history and visual culture. And so here I am today. It's a convoluted route, but it uh, worked out in the end. And in this trajectory of your study of art and fashion, you have written more than a few books, one of which we're going to talk about today. But uh, your book, which immediately preceded this one, is entitled Reading Fashion in Art. Do you want to speak a little bit about this project? And I'm guessing that your work on Duchamp for this title was a sort of gateway of sorts to the larger exploration about his relationship to clothing that we're going to get into today. Yeah, sure. That that your perception is right. Reading Fashion and Art is a book that was written to have sort of wide appeal since fashion and art are inextricably connected. Uh, really in any artwork that contains the human body, whether it's a painting, a drawing, a sculpture, an installation, artists really use fashion to convey messages about identity, gender, beauty, and politics. And 
my desire to write this book was really to help students and anyone else like me who was like me when I picked up Anne Hollander's book, who wanted to better understand the clothing that's represented in artworks. At the time, I was teaching introductory art history class, and it seemed like too many students were struggling with their analysis. I was often asked if I could provide sample essays. And given that I'd already published a book, The Dress Detective, that include uh-huh. checklists that helped guide students through the process of studying dress artifacts, I thought I could do the same for studying fashion and art. And really what the checklists do in both cases, whether it's a dress or a painting, is provide sort of a systematic way or a guide to how to study that particular object. Before, these skills were sort of generally passed down from curator to assistant. I wanted to make it accessible to anyone, whether you worked in a museum or gallery or not. Well, your next book, which we are discussing today, focuses solely on the artist Marcel Duchamp. What inspired you to give his work the singular treatment? Gosh, I never imagined that I'd write a book about Marcel Duchamp. (laughs) (laughs) Quite honestly, his work irritated me. It wasn't beautiful, and I, I really didn't get it. But I was forced to address his influence on what art can be when I tried to understand why fashion encountered prejudice in the museum. Like critics didn't seem to value fashion exhibitions in the same way that they did exhibitions of art. Fashion in the museum was often talked about as if it was frivolous and lacking in intellectual rigor. And even as recently as 2018, I noticed an art critic writing about the Met's Heavenly Bodies exhibition. And he said that fashion exhibitions didn't have this scholarly apparatus associated with art history writing. And that's something you and I know. Not true. (laughs) So I felt really compelled to counter that type of view. And I was trying to assess why Duchamp's ready-mades, like his snow shovel, which is called in advance of a broken arm, or his urinal, which goes by the title of fountain, were not considered or were considered works of art, but a Mondrian dress by Yves Saint Laurent was not. And ultimately that journal led me to Marcel Duchamp. And as I started to dig into the material, I was honestly surprised when I discovered his work had appeared on the cover of Vogue and that he had created a series of waistcoat ready-mades. And even more curious to me was the fact that no one had really written about this before, even though Duchamp is considered one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. And there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of books and PhD dissertations and manuscripts on them. And I I just knew I had to write this book. I don't know whether it'll change anything, but I certainly had to give it a try. Well, I certainly was not familiar with the waistcoat ready-mades. Even knowing, you know, the bit that I already did, having an undergrad in art history, I I was completely surprised and taken back. We are going to talk about those in detail here in a little bit. But um, before we get into that, 
I think it's super important that we have to set up the scene for our listeners, some of whom maybe not familiar with the work of Marcel Duchamp. Could you first tell us a little bit about his background and his formative years, including his journey to becoming an artist? Sure. Marcel Duchamp had a fairly conventional upbringing in a small village in Normandy, France. He was born in 1887, and he was the third of six children, the third boy. His father was a notary, and his two older brothers, who were quite a bit older, were artists. And like his older brothers, Marcel received academic drawing lessons at the local high school, and he actually won several prizes for drawing. After he graduated from high school, he followed his older brothers with the hopes of becoming an artist. Mm -hmm. However, he failed the exam for the École des Beaux-Arts. So he enrolled in the Académie Julienne, um, but he also didn't really go to class that often. (laughs) (laughs) Why does this not surprise me? Yeah. Right? Like to do anything in a conventional way. And instead, he sort of wandered the streets of Paris and used his sketchbook to record his impressions of the people he saw. And he became interested in printmaking for a time. And after his mandatory one year of military service, he started trying to make his name as an illustrator. And he had some modest success in publishing his illustrations in satirical journals. But around 1910, he changed course entirely and began to experiment with abstraction and painting and also focused on the idea of creating movement on a canvas. Yeah, and and that kind of leads us into my next question directly. What was really the landscape of modern art movements at this precise period of time, the early 20th century. What were some of the big ideas that were being probed and who were some of the major players? Around that time, artists really wanted to break from the past. It was a radical shift from representational art into uh, new modes of painting and expression that captured the spirit of this new modern industrial age. So this movement um, towards modernism had artists embracing different types of materials, different techniques, and exploring new ways of really making imagery. Artists that everyone probably familiar with, like Picasso, Matisse, and Braque, experimented with perspective and color, the abstraction of forms and figures. They did things like flattening the picture frame, using really strange, unusual colors to represent the body or a landscape. And also some tried to convey movement and speed. So modernism really to understand the idea of what was happening was just a way for artists to express the modern realities of that particular time in history. Well, I'd like to talk about 1912, if we can, because Marcel suffered a major disappointment that year. What happened in March of 1912, and how was this news delivered to Marcel? That uh, particular month had a profound impact on his life and maybe on the trajectory of modern art altogether. Yeah. 
uh, one day, Marcel was visited by his two brother, older brothers, and um, they were dressed very formally as if they were going to a funeral. Uh, and they told him that his painting that he had submitted to the Salon des Independents had been rejected. Now, this painting was titled New Descending a Staircase Number 2, and it was sort of a fusion between futurism and cubism. And what it depicted was an abstracted nude figure, sort of hard to tell whether it's a man or a woman, descending a staircase in a manner sort of similar to time-lapse photography. Mm -hmm. And his older brothers were actually on the jury of this um, Cubist exhibition. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so um, makes it even more interesting that they rejected it. They felt that the painting didn't conform to what they thought Cubism should be. Mm -hmm. They were a bit concerned that um, by including the painting, because it was a fusion of Cubism and Futurism, that it would weaken their claim to a unique position within the avant-garde. So this was pretty distressing for Marcel. He withdrew the painting from the salon. And then I'm not really sure, there's some sort of gap in what happened exactly, but later that year, the painting was included in exhibitions in Barcelona and Paris. And it, when it was exhibited in Paris, this unusual painting caught the attention of an American artist, Walter Pack, who happened to be one of the organizers for the 1913 Armory Show in New York. And so when the Armory Show opened in the winter of the following year, it was actually the first large exhibition of modern art in America. And most Americans had never been exposed to modern art before. So not surprisingly, Duchamp's um, painting attracted a lot of attention. Critics hated it. <laughs> One called it an explosion of a shingle factory. And there were lots of articles about it and cartoonists lampooned it. Anyway, this brought a lot of people to the Armory show. And some waited 30 to 40 minutes for a very brief look at the painting before they sort of vented their shock, disbelief, rage, or laughter. Nonetheless, Duchamp sold that painting and three other paintings, but he didn't attend the exhibition and didn't really think it mattered that much. All of this is so Duchamp, right? He's so good at pressing people's buttons. Yeah. And at the same time, very so nonchalant about it. Personally. Exactly, yeah. He didn't really seem to care whether or not he was famous or the attention that his uh, work attracted. Yeah, interestingly, after that experience of rejection with his brothers, he had already decided to step away from the art world. He didn't want to be subjected to the whims of juries or public opinion. And he actually had taken a post as a librarian. Oh, it makes perfect sense that he would be a great yeah. lover of books. Well, he was very interested in words, but it didn't mean that he stopped making art, but he just wanted to be freed of the obligation to show or sell his art. He had a salary as a librarian, 
And it was that definitive break from the accepted conventions of art making process, like having to be part of the art world and make your living as an artist that ultimately freed him to reconsider what art could be. But sort of going on, what was happening in New York was that his notoriety in America led for an invitation for him to come to New York. And that trip was orchestrated by Walter Pack, who, as I mentioned, initially sort of secured his painting for the Armory show. And so when Duchamp arrived in New York in June of 1915, he was most definitely considered a celebrity and his arrival in Manhattan was celebrated with a big announcement in Vanity Fair. Yes. Well, we are so glad that he did come and that he didn't stay retired from his art career as a librarian because of 1917. That is the year that Marcel proverbially opened Pandora's box because what he did in 1917 really sort of altered the trajectory of art as we know it today. Um, This idea that he issued forth is kind of one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, it's this idea that's so big, so weighty, and kind of unwieldy at times that that you can't cram it back into the box. So, Ingrid, I'm hoping that you can tell us what happened in 1917 that rocked the foundations of art to its very core. Yeah, 1917 is a big year for modern art. So that year, Marcel bought an ordinary plumbing fixture, a white porcelain urinal and signed it with the name R. Mutt and he added the year 1917. He asked a friend, probably Louise Norton, to submit it on his behalf as an artwork to the first exhibition of the Society of Independent Artists. Now, according to the rules, if the artist paid the fee, the submission was supposed to be accepted into the exhibition. But in this case, not surprisingly, his plumbing fixture prompted an emergency meeting of the board of directors. And Duchamp, who was actually a member of the board, promptly resigned, as did Walter Pack. Um, During the meeting, one of the board members asked, you mean to say if a man sent in horse manure glued to a canvas that we'd have to... (laughs) This seems like a very um, not-so-long-ago conversation that was had regarding Chris Ophelia's work. Right. Maybe he was inspired by that. Mm -hmm. The board took a vote and issued a statement that read, the fountain may be a very useful object in its place, but its place is not in an art exhibition, and it is by no definition a work of art. So... This wasn't actually the first time Duchamp had experimented with these types of objects as works of art. He had posed the question to himself when he was working as a librarian, can one make works that are not art? In 1915 and 1916, the years just before, he experimented with objects like a bicycle wheel on a stool, a snow shovel, bottle rack, a hat rack, an umbrella stand, a comb, and a typewriter cover, and he called them Mm ready-mades. These were objects that he chose as works of art, and with these gestures, he was transforming art from a process of making into a process of selection. 
And so prior to um, 1917, this Society of Independent Artists exhibition, he actually had two of these early ready-mades accepted into an exhibition of modern art at the Bourgeois Gallery. But the umbrella stand and the hat rack, which were displayed at the entrance to the gallery uh, without labels, were overlooked. So they were listed in the exhibition catalog. But because there were no labels, I assume people just thought they were an umbrella stand and a hat rack, and nobody noticed them. But in 1917, Duchamp decided to take steps to make sure that his ready-made fountain wasn't overlooked. So after he withdrew it from the exhibition, he had it photographed by Alfred Stieglitz. This photograph was then published in a second issue of a magazine called The Blind Men. And there were various articles and opinions that gave a spirited defense of his ready-made. And one of the authors said, whether Mr. Mutt with his own hands made the fountain or not has no importance. He chose it. He took an ordinary article of life, placed it so that its useful significance disappeared under a new title and point of view and created a new thought for that object. So Duchamp was connecting art to concept, and that's where conceptual art was born. But it took actually several decades before the term ready-made really came to be associated with these types of artworks. But it was 1917 that really changed what we view as art today. And that's why Duchamp is considered such a pivotal figure in contemporary art. Yeah, and I like that you point out here that he is a pivotal figure in contemporary art, meaning art of today, because, of course, he belonged to the period that art historians call modernism, which we more or less agree ended like in the 1970s or so. But um, Deschamps' work set the stage for questions that are posed by so many artists of today. One recent example is probably Maurizio Catalan's 2019 work Comedian, which some of our listeners probably recall better as being the banana taped to the wall. Um, But this is really a direct descendant of this Duchampian lineage of art, again, posing this question, can anything be art? And really interrogating the role of the artist in that assignment of meaning. It is a question that Duchamp, of course, explores for decades. And when we come back from this brief sponsor break, we will chat with Ingrid Moore about the role clothing played in the world of all things Marcel Duchamp. I'm hoping that we can unpack this term that you've used a few times now, ready-made, in terms of its relationship to clothing, because you do such a wonderful job in the book of situating this term ready-made as a fashion term first. How did Duchamp appropriate and lift this terminology and adapt it for use in his own work? It's so interesting how this term, which now we use as an art term, has its origins in clothing manufacture. So according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the earliest recorded use of the word was in the 17th century. And that, as you know, is when garments were laboriously made by hand. So at that time, ready-made described a piece of clothing or other article that was sort of made to standard size or specification rather than one made to order. 
So for example, you could buy readily buy a cloak or a cape as ready-made since it really didn't need to be fitted by a tailor. But in the 19th century, with the invention of industrial processes and mass production of clothing, there was a sort of two-tiered system that developed, which differentiated custom-made clothing from this mass-produced clothing. And it was during this initial period of mechanization that the term ready-made started to become correlated with low quality and taste. And this negative association actually lingered into the first decade of the 20th century. So just before Duchamp came to New York in October 1912, for example, there was an article in Vogue that explained to readers that ready-made clothing, the makers used poor materials. And if you were a woman of good taste, that was a bad idea to buy ready-made clothing. And because of this negative correlation with poor quality, department stores and tailors sort of caught on to this idea. And the word ready-made began to be substituted with the words ready-to-wear. And that's sort of the, the word that we use today to differentiate between couture or custom tailored clothing. So in 1915, when Duchamp decided to use the term ready-made to describe works like a urinal or typewriter covers a work of art, he was most certainly aware of its link to clothing manufacture and the association of the word with poor quality and poor taste. Later in his life, he once said that the word ready-made was thrust upon him. And given that he was a librarian for a time and had such particular interest in the nuances of language and wordplay, especially when it came to assigning titles to his work, mm-hmm. choice of this words and its association with clothing had to have been a very calculated choice. Yeah, and Duchamp's relationship with clothing, um, the act of dressing and fashion specifically, I would argue has only been partially explored by our historians. So, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you today. And I would also argue that these should probably be considered three distinct categories in his work, his use of clothing, the performative act of dressing, and his own personal consumption of fashion. I'm hoping that we can start this exploration with this last one. This was something rather surprising to me. In one of the chapters in your book, you write, Duchamp is unmasked as a dandy. So can you tell us about Duchamp's personal style and what are some of the qualities of a dandy that he personally embraced? Yeah, I thought that might cause a bit of controversy. Literally thousands of photographs of Duchamp available online And it's remarkable, his impeccable appearance in those images, even when he's dressed in casual clothing. Uh, And when I started to study his consumption of clothing more closely, I was really struck by his impeccable elegance and sense of style. So the word dandy is typically associated with acute attention to one's appearance. And Duchamp was known for his elegance and his physical beauty. Many of his friends and colleagues commented on his handsome appearance 
and um, physical beauty. He also very carefully managed his weight, stayed slim throughout his life, and there's several letters that document that fact. Plus, he often wore pink shirts and well-tailored suits. He was even once photographed wearing a fur coat that would have cost as much as a car. I love that photo. I When I flipped to that page, I was like, oh, yeah. wow. It's kind of like, right. wow, uh, wouldn't have associated a fur coat with, with him. Anyway, his good looks attracted attention from both men and women. Although, you know, physical beauty is sort of a component we associated with a dandy, there is also an element of an air of detachment that's necessary to really qualify someone as a Baudelarian dandy. So the way I picked up on this was that Duchamp did not like to be called an artist and repeatedly said he'd given up art for chess, even though that was not in fact true. He projected an unmistakable sense of confidence and repeatedly conveyed an air of indifference, professing he didn't claim to care about fame or celebrity, when in fact he went to extraordinary efforts to ensure that his artworks and legacy wasn't forgotten. And it's in that sense that I unmasked him as a dandy. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's something about dandyism that it's a little bit of like a playful act of refusal, right? Right, right. I agree. So Marcel was obviously aware of the rather performative acts to dressing one's own corporeal self, the body as a canvas for explorations of identity. And this leads us smack into one segment of his work um, involving clothing that has actually been extensively examined by art historians. Some of our listeners might know the name Rose Salavi in the context of his work, but for those who don't, who is or was Rose and what is her significance in all things Duchampian? Okay. I'll just sort of proceed my answer with saying that Duchamp loved to dress up in disguise. He uh, attended many costume parties and balls and masquerades after he arrived in New York. Um, but it was in sometime in 1920 that he decided to adopt the name Rose Selavi as his female alter ego. So this name he chose was sort of a joke We've talked about the fact that he liked wordplay, and it's considered a pun on the French phrase, eros c'est la vie, meaning sex, that's life. So Duchamp got Rose a business card and signed her name to a number of his works over the years. What's really interesting, and this aspect, as you said, has been studied by many art historians before, is that he appeared as Rose dressed up in women's clothing for a series of images taken by Man Ray. And around this time, the new modern woman, the flapper, had emerged on the scene, sort of seeking to set aside the codes of behavior, dress, and morality that governed women's behavior. The flapper cut her hair, wore androgynous clothing, and was free to embrace her sexuality. And Duchamp hung out with a number of women who who really strongly kind of fit this um, persona. 
And in some ways, I think Duchamp was paying homage to his modern women friends with his female alter ego. And so in dressing up as Rose, I see him using his own body as a Mm ready-made and in signing his works under her name, he's sort of disrupting the traditional manner that artworks are authored. Yeah, I, I, I say not only is he questioning what is art, he's also questioning what is authorship right. at the same time, Right, many times. Well, until I read your book, I never knew that sometimes he conducted business under Rose's name, including part ownership of a fabric dyeing operation and a fashion boutique. This is fascinating. Would you tell us more about that? Isn't that wild? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's true that Duchamp briefly owned a fabric dyeing establishment and fashion boutique with a partner, Leon Hartnell, in the early 1920s. I don't think it lasted very long because not actually much is known about these businesses, aside from the fact that Duchamp was particularly pleased with a bottle green shirt that came from a fabric dyeing operation. And to tell you the truth, I wish I could have investigated these particular business interests further, but I ran into a dead end and then the pandemic happened and archives were closed and travel wasn't possible. Maybe somebody else will be inspired by this podcast to fill in this gap. But in any case, the fact that it existed offers even more evidence that Duchamp was engaged with fashion. Yeah, he he was in the know for sure. And not just fashion in terms of garments, but also cosmetics and beauty products. Because, you know, Duchamp was obviously quite the prankster, right? He liked to be a little bit of a trickster. Um, And Rose pulled her own stunts. Would you tell us a little bit about Belle Helene? And how did this fit into the landscape of, quote unquote, celebrity cosmetic lines at the time? So in 1921, Duchamp decided that his alter ego, Rose Salavi, would be the ideal name under which to launch a new brand of perfume. And he created Belle Helene Eau de Violette, which means beautiful breath, veil, water. So to make this ready-made, he took a perfume bottle made by the firm Rico Paris, he removed the label and substituted his own label, one that had the photo of Rose Salavi taken by Man Ray. And he also inscribed Rose's signature on the label of the perfume box. Now, this ready-made, if you look it up online, is quite a pretty object. The violet-covered box and the greenish glass bottle are aesthetically pleasing objects. And usually this is something that Duchamp otherwise tried to avoid when selecting his ready-mades. But he really is a man that's a mix of contradictions, always aiming to do something new and provocative with each artwork. In this case, I think he may have been trying to lampoon couturier Paul Paré's claim to be an artist. Now, their paths crossed several times before he created this perfume. And Poiret was the first fashion designer to create his own perfume under the corporate entity Les Parfums de Rosine. And he not only influenced, but profoundly changed the perfume industry. His perfume, Les Parfums de Rosine, 
was in the early 1920s, one of the most popular brands of perfume manufactured and sold in France and America, selling something like 200,000 bottles of perfume a month, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And Paré had made public declarations that he was an artist, not a dressmaker. And I have to guess this provocative statement would have been good reason for Duchamp to mock Poiré's celebrity status with this ready-made. And I also find it really fascinating that this particular ready-made was owned by designer Yves Saint Laurent during his lifetime. After his death, uh, it sold at auction for 8.9 million euros, which is about $11.5 million. And that's a lot of money for an empty perfume bottle. Right. Um, so it was never filled with perfume. It was actually just the bottle itself in the packaging. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know where it resides today? It's not in a museum collection, is it? Is it, is it in a private collection? It's not. It was bought by a private collector. Rose makes appearance again. In 1938, several years later at the International Surrealist Exhibition, would you tell us a little bit about what Duchamp's role was in this particular exhibition? How did it fit into the bigger picture of his art career during the 1930s? So for this particular exhibition, he was responsible for the exhibition design. The terms like curator, exhibition designer weren't really used at that time. He was responsible for creating the mise-en-scene and deciding what went where and what was around it, how it was lit. And so for this exhibition, which actually took place in one of the most fashionable galleries in Paris, he reimagined this elegantly appointed 18th century interior into a dark grotto and created an immersive space that really confounded the visitors. It was so dark that uh, people were given flashlights to see the art. And there were a thousand empty coal sacks hanging over their heads, which sort of dropped coal dust onto you as you were in the gallery. So there was one part that was particularly um, provocative, and that was a narrow corridor between the gallery spaces where he and other artists dressed female mannequins borrowed from a local department store. So those mannequins were in various states of undress, and some were accessorized with odd things like bird cages, rooster heads, bales, and other kinds of kitchen utensils. For example, Salvador Dali dressed his mannequin with a fuchsia pink knitted helmet by Elsa Scaparelli, and covered the mannequin's body with tiny coffee spoons. So Duchamp's mannequin was a little bit more modest, and he apparently just took off his own clothes, his jacket, waistcoat, shirt, tie, hat, and shoes, to um, dress this mannequin as Rose Salavi. So she was presented to the public for the first time in this exhibition. But she actually didn't attract much notice, I think, compared to the other mannequins. Probably wasn't that interesting. Well, also, it's a very specific commentary on gender bending, right? Because before it was 
Duchamp dressing up as Rose. And and now here we have the flip side of the coin where Duchamp is dressing Rose up as Marcel. Exactly, exactly. Would have been unusual at that particular moment in time. Yeah, I, I always found his work so provocative. And, and that's one of the reasons why he's, he's one of my all-time favorite artists. Um, also interesting fact that he more or less walked away from the art world in the 1940s. Um, did he ever address this specifically as to why and what exactly was he occupying his time with the last few decades of his life? This is something that you've actually already alluded to a little bit. Actually, it was as early as the 1920s that he began to tell people he'd given up art for chess. Mm -hmm. Quite passionate about chess and traveled to and participated in chess tournaments. And that didn't mean that he wasn't making art, but he just wasn't telling people publicly that he was making art. And in some ways, you can think of it that he managed his life and his career like a chessboard making his next move in the art world in a very strategic manner and keeping his motivation and moves to himself. And in the last few decades of his life, he actually worked in secret on a very provocative installation piece called Etant Donné, which is presently installed at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. No one besides his wife, Timi, knew that he was working on it And it was a surprise to everyone after Revealed and still to this day is somewhat confounding to Duchamp scholars. If you've ever peeped through those tiny little portholes to look at the installation, you'll you'll know what I mean. It's hard to know what he intended with that work. Yeah, it's almost, it's like a vitrine. So there's like these little holes in the door and you can peek through and see what's on the other side. Right. yeah. And if anybody is interested in, in this um, particular piece, there is a massive catalog about the piece itself because Duchamp never intended anyone to see it until after his death. He right? Let people guessing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So at this point in the 1940s, we can categorize Marcel as quote-unquote, semi-retired, I guess, from making art. But this is not entirely true, of course. Let's talk about one of his most explicit explorations of the intersection of art and dress. This is the one that has barely, if at all, been explored by art historians. What was the Made to Measure series, and in what way is the title of it supremely ironic? Yeah, I'm so glad we got to this part. This is the part I find the most interesting. Uh The Made to Measure series by Marcel Duchamp consists of four waistcoats that he selected modified and authored as ready-mades between 1957 and 1961. So in each case, he purchased a ready-made vest at a department store or shop and altered the buttons to spell out the names of the persons that he intended to give these waistcoats to. This included his wife, Alexina, whose nickname was Teeny, his daughter-in-law, Sally, his friend, artist Benjamin Paré, and another friend, Betty. In the last two waistcoats who were given to non-family members were also signed with his name written in ink on the inside lining. So we have already discussed that Duchamp was very thoughtful in his choice of titles for his work. And the phrase 
made to measure was one that was typically associated with fine tailoring and haute couture. And yet these ready-mades were purchased in a department store, altered and signed as artworks. And so it's in this sense that the title of the series is supremely ironic. And given that he himself liked a finely tailored suit, there's no doubt in my mind that he made a calculated choice to link the word ready-made to clothing manufacture. And this series is very important because it actually counters the idea that art cannot be worn. Since in donning the waistcoat, the wearer actually becomes a walking, talking ready-made. Yeah. And I would love to explore this concept of the ready-made a little bit further. The original ready-made Duchamp's Fountain is now more than 100 years old at this point. Um, But I would still say that a lot of people struggle with the idea of appropriation in art. Um, and, And the last chapter of your book is something that addresses that question, what makes art art specifically. Would you walk us through some of the quote-unquote, as you write in the book, requisite conditions of the ready-made as articulated by Duchamp? Because these are kind of like the rules and stipulations of the game. Right. It is a game, right? Yeah. So the rules of the game are as follows. Duchamp first described how to make a ready-made in a letter to his sister in 1916. So he told her to take an ordinary object and sign it. So in signing the object with your name, the artist becomes the author of the ready-made. And this is the first condition for a ready-made. Authorship. Authorship. So Duchamp also thought that the spectator had an equal role in this creative act. And he believed that it was the viewer who had to render judgment whether or not a ready-made was a work of art. He described this interaction in such an interesting way. He called it as a spark of energy that gives birth to something. So the second condition of the ready-made is that a spectator has to concur or agree that it qualifies as an artwork. Yeah, so it's almost like this like act of collusion Who's bringing the viewer in and saying, hey, are we going to agree on this? Right, right. And then the third condition of the ready-made is that a curator or someone kind of within the art world has to select that object and display it as an artwork. And while Duchamp never called himself a curator, he acted in that capacity throughout his entire career. He designed exhibitions, he acted as an art dealer, and also actively sought to have prominent collectors purchase his work. And even though he professed repeatedly not to care, he ultimately orchestrated that his work would be held in major public institutions like the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And we know that the curator's role is important in defining the ready-made, because of the fact that several of his early ready-mades were overlooked when first displayed. In fact, at one exhibition of his snow shovel ready-made in Minnesota in 1946, the janitor thought it was just another snow shovel and used it to clear the snow. Mm -hmm. So he, 
So the curator's involvement is the third condition. Mm-hmm. Well, and I like that you point out that particular incident in the book because what it also points out is that several of his early ready-mades were kind of quote-unquote lost to history, the snow shovel being one of them. They were actually later recreated, right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So in the 60s, the early part of the 60s, a uh, collector in Milan approached Duchamp about remaking his ready-mades and they were selected and created in editions of eight. So these were quite unlike the original ready-mades that were just purchased in the store and, and signed as ready-mades. These were finely crafted objects made to very specific specifications. And there's drawings and all kinds of documents that, that show the acute attention to detail in replicating these objects. So when we see the urinal or the snow shovel or other ready-mades from this 1965 series, those are ones that were replicated later to replace the objects that had been originally lost. So there again, he was playing with the idea of originality and authenticity because These aren't singular objects that the artists were chosen. These are finely crafted objects that were reproduced in a series. Yeah. So it's almost, again, flipping the coin again on us in terms of uh, the first original ready-mades were about the process of selection, whereas now in the reproduction of them, it's about the craft and the making. Right. So the narratives, he just likes to flip that narrative back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on us. For sure. Even when he was alive, people, various artists sort of approached him about replicating his work and he wasn't adverse to that. He welcomed it. I guess he thought it was a compliment. So, But the reality is it's the, it's the presence of the ready-made in an institution like the Philadelphia Museum of Art um, that acknowledges the ready-made as a work of art and displays it as such that sort of sets up this um, ultimate question that I'm trying to address in my book. Uh, When we see, we go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, for example, and see a Mondrian painting adjacent to an Yves Saint Laurent dress of the Mondrian painting, how do we decide which one is art and which one is not? When we enter a museum, we're conditioned to have an experience that's different from the everyday. And because we anticipate seeing art, we're primed to accept the institutional authority of the museum in defining what's collected and exhibited as art. So Mm -hmm. it was in going to fashion exhibitions and kind of confronting two objects that might be displayed in a similar fashion, say behind glass or on a plinth. And to me, they, you know, captivate and enchant me in the same way. I have sort of, I can have a profound experience in front of a painting and also in front of a haute couture dress. And they didn't really understand why one was called art and one was not. So the obvious question that I'm sort of struck with or that I wanted to answer was if a dress presented in a museum could also fit the requisite 
conditions of the ready-made. I would like to talk to you about your section where you test the parameters of the ready-made because does the concept of the ready-made apply outside of the world of Duchamp? right? You go into an examination of a very famous work in fashion history, one that's not by Duchamp, but rather Yves Saint Laurent. How does the concept of the ready-made hold up outside of Marcel's own oeuvre? Right. I chose two Yves Saint Laurent Mondrian-inspired dresses from his fall-winter 1965-66 collection that are in the Costume Institute at the Met so that I could actually examine them in person. And I chose these particular dresses since they're considered iconic. And they're often mentioned when people talk about the intersection of fashion and art. And plus, there's lots of interesting parallels between Duchamp and Saint Laurent. We've already talked about the fact that Saint Laurent owned Belle Helene. So he must have been fascinated by Duchamp himself. And they, you know, Saint Laurent described himself as a failed painter. And we know that profound experience that Duchamp had in 1912 when his painting was rejected. So they share that. And they also share the fact that they were both subjected to a lot of criticism and notoriety after exhibiting their work. In any case, the bottom line is that the difference between Duchamp's waistcoat ready-mades and Mondrian dresses as ready-mades, when I apply these four requisite conditions of the ready-made, are are ultimately infra-thin. And that's a word that Duchamp himself used to describe situations where something is almost imperceptible, like the sound of velvet trousers rubbing together. This term that you just mentioned, imphithrin, is also, of course, another droll example of his love of wordplay. And it's a definition that he made up himself to describe differences so minute that they are almost undetectable. So what I want to ask you next is when Duchamp's rules of the game are applied to the YSL Mondrian dresses as presented in museums specifically, do they pass the litmus test as ready-mades? And should we consider them as art? And does this apply to all fashion in museums? It's a hard question to answer in a soundbite because, you know, my whole book is based on that very question. Mm-hmm. So some people might answer that anything can be art if the artist says it is. But the evidence that Duchamp left us is complex. We know that he co-opted the term ready-made, the word that has its origins in word manufacture to describe ordinary objects selected by artists, which doesn't preclude clothing and assign the status of artworks. He very deliberately created a series of waistcoat ready-mades that ironically references the tailoring of clothing and makes it clear that art can be worn. And plus, he decided that the spectator had to decide whether or not an object was a work of art. And so ultimately, my answer to the question is that we have to decide for ourselves whether or not his waistcoat series or a Mondrian dress 
or any other object in the museum as a work of art. So really, yes, fashion can be art and art can be fashion under certain conditions, but ultimately the answer's up to us if we accept it as such. It sure is. And again, these questions that Marcel gifted to us continue to be relevant today. Months ago on the show, actually, I called out Balenciaga for playing a very Duchampian game in terms of not art, but fashion with us all. You know, doing things like gluing a tied shoestring to an earring back or the now infamous trash bag. Both of these things really beg the question, are they fashion? And force us to confront the very definition of fashion. And I would argue that a lot of what is happening at Balenciaga is actually physical evidence of a very elaborate game of branding, wherein the goal is to get a lot of people to agree that it is fashion in order to make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And that's a little bit of where I take some issue with this game that Balenciaga is playing with its customers. Ingrid, you have already pointed out that Duchamp was never about making money and exploring these concepts, but now his hundred years old ideas are being applied in a way that feels sort of predatory to me, to Balenciaga customers. Do they know they're being toyed with? Do they believe this is truly fashion because they don't know this history? Does that belief make it fashion? And also, you know, the other question is, what role should innovation play in defining fashion and art? Um, these are but a few of the fascinating questions that are still very much part of the current discourse on art and fashion, which is why Duchamp remains incredibly relevant still today. Ingrid, I want to thank you so much for the chance to speak to you about some of my favorite topics all in the course of one episode. I thoroughly enjoyed your thought-provoking book. And if people would like to learn more about your work and your books, they can, of course, find you on your website, which is ingridmida.com, I-N-G-R-I-D-M-I-D-A.com. But where else can they find you? I'm also on Instagram as the dress detective. That's probably the best place to get in touch with me. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Dress, for the Costume Society of America. So it's easy to reach me there. You can find my email if you want to reach out. If, you have a, if you're a fashion scholar and want to publish, I'd love to hear from you. So I'm easily Googleable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a delight. Thank you, April. It's really been a wonderful experience. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating discussion. April, right alongside you, I was surprised and so delighted to find out that Duchamp was a bit of a dandy. I mean, mm -hmm. who knew? <laughs> and many of us who are familiar with his work, right, we just might not have considered his own personal relationship with style, let alone the use of dress in his work. So Dr. Maida really so eloquently explored that in her book and in this talk. Yes, and that book, again, is entitled Dressing and Undressing Duchamp. And if you would like to get your hands on a copy, it would make a great holiday gift for that art history lover on your list. And of course, her other two books as well, The Dress Detective and Reading Fashion in Art. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you ponder if the fashion residing in your closet can also function as art next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. 
Alternately, you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. And dress listeners, this is actually our second to last episode of season five. Can you believe it, April? I know. (laughs) We will actually be back this week on Thursday with our annual gift exchange episode. And after that dress, we will be on hiatus until January 17th when we relaunch with new episodes for season six. In the intervening weeks, we'll be re-airing some dress classic episodes from our back catalog. But fear not, we have so much more coming to you next year and next season. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. The very last episode of Season 5 of Dressed, coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.